Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host, and today, today we're doing something a little different. You see, this is our anniversary month here on Scream Addicts. Two years ago, we started out doing a YouTube show with a weekly podcast to complement it. It didn't work out, and they both sort of went away for a while. We tried resurrecting the YouTube show, and it still didn't work out, even though a handful of episodes are still available to view if you search YouTube for Scream Addicts. Anyway, the podcast continued on after the death of the YouTube show. We had a new set of co-hosts come in for a time to help us get it all back up and running before eventually landing on the format that we have now. That is, you know, we invite on a horror creative of some sort, you know, writers, directors, actors, musicians, fellow podcasters, and we let them choose a single horror movie that we then chat about at length. And through that time, our audience has grown considerably. And, um... We know you're out there. We know you're listening. We've seen the numbers. We we don't know why you won't say hello on social media or on our page, but we appreciate your need for privacy and love you all the same. Anyway, in that time, we've had some listeners ask how they might go about being on the show. So for this anniversary episode, we put the call out fairly last minute to see if any listeners wanted to come out and chat about a single movie of their choosing for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. And what follows are those mini chats with Scream Addicts listeners. And we hope you enjoy them. What happened to Kane? I don't think it attached itself to him. We have to get him to the infirmary right away. What kind of thing? I need a clear definition. Oh, I feel yes. dead. Anybody ever tell you you look dead? <laughs> What's the matter? The food ain't that bad, oh. baby. <laughs> Well, I think it's just one of those iconic films. Everyone's heard of it, even if they've not seen it before. And when you watch it, it's aged so well. And the fact that it takes its time to build up the story and it focuses more on the atmosphere rather than jump scares. So you can be creeped out and then all of a sudden something will happen that will scare you. And then it goes back to the little banter between the crew and then suddenly it gets right into it and the rest of the film is just claustrophobic and you're on the edge of your seat. And not many films that I can think of do that, really. That was Craig Sutherland talking about Ridley Scott's 1979 sci-fi horror film, Alien. Mr. Sutherland is otherwise known as the Angry Librarian, so make certain to check out his YouTube show under that name. They're, they're fantastic. And we'll make certain to post the link to that show in our show notes. Anyway, Mr. Sutherland, thanks so much for being on the show. That's great. Thanks for asking. I've been a fan of the show for ages. Ah, thank you very much. Now, can I ask of any horror movie you might have chosen, why go with Alien? Well, it's hard to choose one, really, because you've had so many good ones picked in the past. But I'd have to say it's probably one of the first horror films I ever remember seeing, and it scared the shit out of me. So <laughs> it was an obvious choice, to be honest. Oh, yeah. It, I, I I can't recall exactly the first time that I saw the movie as a kid. I, I have vivid memories of seeing the alien itself you know uh, I mm. remember my older brother actually had this weird little alien toy like a xenomorph toy uh, which is like one of the cheap like 70s you know toys but it was still kind of terrifying and I remember catching glimpses of it on television I remember hearing my parents you know talk about seeing it on opening night you know when it came out back in the day and uh, I don't weirdly enough I don't think I actually watched the movie beginning to end until I had become sort of a, a genre fan proper like you know in my teens but when I finally saw it it it, it, it kind of surprised me in that, you know, for all the reasons that you noted in your intro, uh, it, it surprised me that it did take its time. It surprised me that it played more with suspense than outright horror or action, which I'd sort of uh, related to the franchise due to, you know, glimpses I had caught of Aliens or, you know, some of the sequels. But um, I don't know. How how does the movie stack up for you 
against the sequels, which seem to be more about bombast and action and just, you know, uh, moving like a bat out of hell? Well, it's hard to really compare them because they sort of change genre slightly with each one that comes. I mean, the second one, Aliens, is clearly it's just sci-fi action and they focus more on how many people die and how many bullets you can shoot rather than trying to build up the tension. And they tried it again in number three, but didn't really work very well i mean i kind of like the story and then number four they went straight back to the more action type thing and i think they never really managed to grasp that sort of chemistry they had with all the cast and the effects and the story i don't think they ever got close to being just as good horror wise i mean number two is still fantastic but you can't really judge it as a horror film really i don't think it's definitely more actiony yeah absolutely i agree and you know I, I will say that when I finally got around to watching Alien as a teen, you know, up until that point, I was familiar with, say, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and Friday the 13th and all of the sort of, uh, you know, major franchises that one gets acquainted with when they're just becoming, you know, sort of like a burgeoning fan. And what I appreciated about Alien straight away was the fact that, you know, this was a cast not populated by, you know, nubile teenagers. You know, it, it, mm. it's, you know, the the they're all adults, which, uh, you know, seemed rare even then, uh, arguably rare still now in some cases, at least with movies like that. And I, I kind of loved that about it. I, I love the cast, you know, and um, it it was really refreshing, I think, in a way to not see another teens in peril sort of movie. And I was wondering what, what are your overall impressions of the cast? Uh, not just the, uh, the actors, but the characters themselves. Well, like I said, it makes a massive difference that they're not just a group of horny teenagers who are trying to get laid and have some drugs <laughs> and some alcohol. They're all grown-ups who are doing a very serious job. They're light years away from home and they're all just sort of having a laugh and carrying on with it. And they take time to build those characters so that when you have, um, Kane have the iconic alien bust of his stomach, you're actually shocked that one of them has died all of a sudden because it's taken that long to get to that point. And then one by one, they slowly disappear. And because they've taken that time to make you like them, you care. Whereas a lot of, especially with slasher films, they try and make it so that you don't like the characters and they try and make it so that you root for the bad guy. I mean, if you look at any of the sequels to you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and Halloween, the characters are kind of ancillary. It's the main bad guy. You know, We're rooting for Jason, we're rooting for Michael. Whereas you don't really root for the alien in the Alien franchise. You're always hoping that Ripley or whoever is in them is going to manage to defeat the creature in the end. As opposed to wanting to see the next kill or the next big effect or, you know, whatever crazy thing was going to happen to some, you know, poor unsuspecting teenager next. You know, I I, I didn't want that to happen to the characters in Alien. You know, I, I was dreading that, you know, and the movie definitely plays with those expectations, like you pointed out, with because, you know, we know what we're getting into straight away. We know that it's going to be a sci-fi horror movie. We know that terrible things are going to happen. And yet, because we learn to love those characters and because it takes so very long to get to that first death, it, it does hurt more, I think. It hurts all the more because we actually like them. We like... You know, we like Tom Skerritt's Dallas. We like Veronica Cartwright's Lambert. You know, uh, love Harry Dean Stanton's, you know, Brett. But I, and, you know, that's sadly still so rare, I think, in the horror genre. You know, I'm not talking about all horror movies, maybe not even most horror Mm. movies, because inevitably, you know, the best horror movies have characters that we love. But, you know, generally, it seems like the focus is always on the lead or maybe a couple of leads or whatever. But in Alien's case, all of the characters are relatable. All of the characters are kind of likable in their own way. 
Well, yeah, I remember the first time I watched it, I didn't figure out straight away that Ripley was the main character. I mean, she they don't really give her the limelight from off the bat. She never has it's, that final uh, girl investigative gaze. Exactly. She's just getting on with her job. She doesn't seem to be that fussed with what's going on. And then as panic starts to set in, she's sort of taking charge, but only because she's sort of second in command. I mean, you've got Dallas, who is the leader. And it's only once he goes that Ripley really has to stand up to the limelight. And it's not because she wants to. It's because everyone else turns to her because, well, you're in charge now. What do we do? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I will say that lends the finale. I mean, even as a kid, you know, when I knew that Ripley was kind of the face of the franchise and by that point she was already in four of the things, you know, I, I knew that mm. she was the lead of the series and, you know, she likely wasn't going to die. Um you know, the end of part three surprised the hell out of me. But, um, <laughs> you know, by the, even then, you know, even knowing that, you, you know, you if a movie draws you in enough, you forget about anything outside of the film that you're watching. And by the time you get to the finale of Alien, because Ripley hasn't necessarily been the clear cut hero up until that point, uh, you know, there's still the feeling that she might very well die in the final minutes. And it's kind of like this huge relief that she and, uh, well, the cat, you know, make it out of all of it. <laughs> well, I was going to say, when you get to that end scene, it's very tense. There's not much talking. She sort of starts singing a little rhyme to herself. And you're not sure if she is going to get out of it alive. And I say, because they just haven't, they set it up in such a way that you're not sure what are they going to do with her. Because obviously at the time, you don't know it's going to be a sequel. When I first saw it, when I was about 12, maybe, I didn't know there was any after it. So I was literally sat there, shitting my pants scared, but I didn't know what was going to happen with her. <laughs> and I got to say, too, I I love Ripley. I love Sigourney Weaver as that character. I think she's one of the greatest heroines in all of horror and sci-fi. You know what? Nick said, I, I think she's one of the greatest heroines in cinema, period. You know, And I'm she, including... She's regularly under... She's regularly under looked when it comes to um, Final Girls. I mean, she is the definition of Final Girls. She's the last girl that's alive. But she regularly... No one really mentions her. You you bring up Laurie Strode and people like that and, you know, Nancy from uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. But you don't really bring up Ripley. Well, I wonder... You know, that's a very good point. I wonder why that is. I wonder if... Most genre fans or really most anyone who knows what the term final girl, you know, what that refers to. I wonder why they don't necessarily see her as a final girl. And I will admit, I don't know that I've always considered her one, too. And I wonder if it's because she is in some way so much more capable and resourceful than the typical. She's older. It might I be that, too. Well, yeah, old. because Nancy is resourceful, too, I guess. And Sidney Campbell, yeah. too. So, yeah, you, you might be right. It might just be the age thing. You kind of you're expecting a teenage girl who's just, you know, a nerdy virgin who all of a sudden manages to outwit the killer, where you're given straight away someone who's very capable of handling herself. So it's kind of not a surprise that she wins. So you kind of expect that, yes, she would manage to survive. So I'm wondering if that's why. I mean, I've always thought of her as a final girl, but I can see why people don't. Yeah, why she doesn't immediately spring to mind, which is a shame because, I mean... I she's brilliant, you know. Even the the sequels, uh, which I gotta admit, I I love the franchise. I I love it through and through. Clearly, the best movies in the franchise are Alien and Aliens. But at the same time, like the extended yeah. cut of three, you know, I think is actually a pretty solid movie. Four, you know, Resurrection is not. It's not a good movie. It's not, but it's gorgeous, and she is fantastic. And I think she. 
no matter how dodgy the sequels were, you know, even at their lowest, I think Sigourney Weaver always sort of came through them unscathed because she's so damn good in that role. She makes them watchable. I mean, number four is worth watching just to see how weird she acts when she's becoming this weird hybrid. <laughs> I mean, she's it's very weird to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. And, you know, going back to Alien, too, one of the really, really surprising things that jumped out at me at the time was, you know, I was a kid who grew up not watching many horror movies. You know, I, like I said, I didn't really get into them until I was a teen. But when I started getting into them, I was aware of, you know, sort of loads of silly creature features. And, uh, you know, anything that sort of smacked the fantasy or sci-fi, you know, you're sort of sometimes presented with effects that aren't that convincing or aren't that terrifying. And, you you know, you can kind of see the seams running up the back sometimes. And I remember watching Alien for the first time. And even though I was aware of what the xenomorph looked like, actually seeing glimpses of him in the film, you know, that was terrifying enough. But once the big reveal happens, I just remember kind of sitting in front of the television in awe of that design, you know, for the first time. And I just Giger's designs for the movie and how they executed them, I think are absolutely stunning. I still think it's some of the best effects work that any movie like that ever had. I saw the um, Alien in the cinemas a few weeks ago. There was a special with the Alien Convent. Really? And watching it on the big screen, you know, it was my, I took my partner, it's our favourite film, and just watching it, you were absorbed, and it looks better than some big budget movies that you go see now. Like Alien and Covenant. even though I... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you watched that, they played that first, and then that came afterwards, and the difference was so... Now, it's so obvious that that CG, they haven't put as much effort and care and love into making it. Whereas you watch Alien now, and you know, this is decades old. That scene at the end where it's hiding in all the pipes, and then it's, she sort of presses the buttons to make it come out. That's terrifying still, the fact that it's actually physically there. I agree. I absolutely agree. And, it, you know, and I think there's something, you know, we've talked on this show before about, you know, practical effects versus CG. And I think most horror fans are on the same page preferring practical. But I mean, you know, I I'm glad that you brought that up because, you know, for months now I have gone back and forth on Alien Covenant. You know, I wanted to love that movie so much. But now that it's finally on Blu-ray, I think I can finally admit to myself that even though I love Ridley Scott and even though I think it's a beautifully shot movie and even though there are some great performances in it, it is not a good movie. And it perhaps best exemplifies the talk that we're having right now about the, you know, why practical effects look better than CG because everything in that original alien, a guy in a suit carefully photographed, you know, is so much more effective than seeing, uh, you know, a CG xenomorph run around a ship like, you know, uh, um, an alien on crack because that's totally what it seemed like in that damn movie in the finale. Exactly. I mean, when when that alien's running around in convent, it just looks so fast. It's like a little terrier just jumping around the screen. <laughs> Whereas when you look at the practical effects of the original, they use camera tricks and angles and lighting so that it looks like it's moving fast, but through editing so they can get away with just showing you its arm reach out. And it's done with other angles, whereas now they just go, right, we want the alien to jump across and smack five people and run away. And they just do that with a computer. And you sit there thinking, that just looks stupid. 
It really, it really does. It was very disheartening to me, especially considering, you know, I was used to that with some Alien sequels, but damn it, not with Ridley Scott at the helm. Not even Prometheus. Prometheus had this sort of, you know, for as big as it was and for as much, you know, obvious CG that was in it, I, there was still a kind of handcrafted feel to that movie, whereas Covenant felt like it was very slapdash, which is the last thing I expect from a Ridley Scott movie, good or bad. I came out of that film really sort of, well, my partner was more on the edge, but I just came out shaking my head thinking, what a waste, because I got myself so built up for it, which you should never do now for horror films, really, or any film in general. You should never get your hopes up, because nine times out of ten, you come out sort of thinking, well, that was wasting my money. (laughs) I agree, but at least, you know, I, I will say one of the first thoughts that I had coming out of Alien Covenant was, you know, hey, at least we still have the original, you know? Exactly, and I'll never forget. Like I say, the first time I watched it, I was gr- I grew up watching classic Doctor Who. So what you were saying about dodgy monster effects and things like that—that that was the scariest I'd ever seen. And then one day, I found a VHS of Alien that my mum had, and I just thought, "What the hell is this?" And she saw me looking at it and said, "No, you can't watch that." So obviously, I snuck down while she was in bed that night and watched it downstairs, sat as close to the TV, and I believe I don't think I screamed, but I think she heard me jumping back and then sort of asked me the next day, "You look very tired, and didn't you sleep very well?" No, I don't know why I didn't sleep very well, but I remember that seeing Alien um, Convent and any of its sequels. That feeling never came back, but it's nice that you have that feeling, though. Yeah. I agree. Well, sir, unfortunately, I think we've just about reached our time. Can I ask, where can folks find you at online? Uh, I have the Angry Librarian um, channel on YouTube, but like many people in horror films, I think that's kind of died to death. But if no. anyone wants to look at it, feel free. <laughs> the Angry Librarian, like, you know, most slasher characters in horror movies, needs to be resurrected, sir. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe if I get bored enough. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me on, and like I say, I love the show, and hopefully you'll keep going for a few more years, and bring back the YouTube channel. That was fantastic. Ah, might very well, might very well. Thank you again. (laughs) You're very welcome. See you later, Jinx. To a new world of gods and monsters. Alone. Bad. Friend. Good. She's alive. Alive! The Bride of Frankenstein. You stay. We belong dead. This is probably weird for me to say, but I'm not a big fan of Frankenstein. And then after watching Bride of Frankenstein, it just the way the monster wasn't just walking around as a dummy. He had more emotion and he showed it and there was laughs in it and stuff like that. It just it just it was a movie that I probably saw when I was 11 or 12 and it stuck with me all these years later. That was Carl Felty talking about James Whale's Universal Monsters classic Bride of Frankenstein. Mr. Felty, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, as with every episode, got to ask any horror movie, any at all, and you picked Bride of Frankenstein. Why is that? The fact that it just stuck with me the first time I saw it and it really had an effect on me and and my problem when I was growing up, I was growing up with very overprotective parents. And even when we'd go to the video rental stores, my mom would read the box, the back of everything. So there was so much I didn't get to see growing up, which now that I look back at it, I really like it because it made me respect the classics more and set 
through them and watch them over and over because I wasn't allowed to watch certain certain things because of having overprotective parents. You know, it's funny. I, I've i said many times on this show before that I didn't really get into horror movies until I was a teen. You know, I had uh, my only brushes with them were, uh, you know, with like my, my brother trying to terrorize me with them or, uh, you know, just, you know, catching Nightbreed in a theater for the first time or a buddy trying to show me the fly. You know, eventually all of those little steps sort of led me to being a horror fan. But, you know, I, I always neglect to mention that. When I was growing up, I was about 10, uh, when it seemed like there was this push from Universal to bring out all of their classic Monsters movies onto VHS. And weirdly enough, there was like this Pizza Hut promotion where if you bought like a children's personal pan pizza, it came in a Universal Monsters box and you got a Universal Monsters cup like one of four. I think it was like Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman or whatever. But they had these like uh, really cool lids that have embossed monster faces on them and it occurs to me that that's kind of like this weird blind spot in my own personal history with loving (laughs) horror movies you know because I did before I got into any of the you know big franchise stuff later on or all the 80s horror movies or any of the modern stuff I did have that experience with all of the uh, the Universal Monsters movies in the early 90s and Bride of Frankenstein was absolutely one of my favorites too although I gotta admit I'm a little shocked that you said that you didn't like the first Frankenstein. I, I, mean, I, I, I don't hate it, but I, it was just kind of disappointing for me somewhat compared to – because I'm a big Universal guy, but I'm just kind of like, yeah, with it a little bit. So <gasps> I know it shocks a lot of people. I don't really admit this very often. <laughs> like I said, I was 11 or 12, and I remember watching Frankenstein, and it kind of bo- bored me at the time. And then the first time I saw him was back-to-back, and then I was just – Brian just blew me away how much better it was. <laughs> You know, I, I do think it is the better movie, although uh, it is the better film overall, I think. I, I do love Bride's mix of sort of horror and humor, uh, even if, you know, some of the sequences, I think, push a little too hard on, you know, the camp. I'm thinking of like the little, you know, homunculi sequence. You know, I think that stretches the film yeah. maybe a tad far. But uh, whereas the original Frankenstein, I think, is more of a, a grim piece, which... I kind of prefer out of a Frankenstein movie, but I can't deny that Bride is a much better directed film. I love actually hearing Karloff's, you know, monster speak and emote, and he is more of a character. He's not, he's still, you know, in Bride, he doesn't quite approach Shelley's creature, you know, who is quite intelligent and quite articulate. But uh, it it is nice to see more from Karloff in this movie. And I I will say it does make for a great double feature with that first movie. You know, it, it feels like, Rather than being a sequel or a knockoff or, you know, just a, uh, a a cash grab of a continuation, it feels like it really completes that first movie. You know, of course, the franchise will continue on after that. Uh, but yeah. but I think Frankenstein and Bride together, it feels like one complete story. And they're both so damn short. I mean, you can smash them together and essentially you have one two and a half hour long film. Yeah, that's just that's great about the Universal Monsters. You can just watch them and binge watch and you're done in a few hours, basically. But you mentioned Karloff. One thing that I, I know most of your listeners probably know this, but I always find it funny that Karloff was against the monster speaking. And I think most horror fans will probably agree that he was wrong on that idea because it made his performance even more amazing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it gave, you know, it's strange. I, I wonder if there's any sort of trepidation from him as an actor because he had been in loads of stuff up until that point, you know, and he is a very good actor. So, you know, I got to imagine maybe he just felt passionately that the characters shouldn't speak. But, you know, at, at the same time, because he does and because it gives Karloff a little more to do, I, I, I think it's one of his best performances, uh, certainly the best as that character. Oh, definitely. So, yeah, I and, you know, we're talking about Karloff a lot, but of course, you know, he isn't the title character this time around. Not really. I mean, this is called The Bride of Frankenstein. And yet what's incredible to me as a fan all these years later watching, I don't know that it ever occurred to me when I was a kid seeing them for the first time. But whenever you look at the lineup of classic monsters, whenever they did those uh, logos with Dracula, you know, of course, never looking like Lugosi or, uh, yeah. you know, Frankenstein or the creature from the Black Lagoon or the Wolfman, you know, uh, the Invisible Man, so on and so forth. Inevitably, front and center, just about, would be the Bride of Frankenstein. She is arguably the most iconic looking figure out of all of the Universal Classic Monsters. You know, she has that amazing hair. She has an amazing look. And yet, when you watch Bride of Frankenstein, she only appears on screen for a few scant moments, you know? Yeah. But uh, but her, but her scenes are amazing. That that's another thing I should mention. Those last two or three minutes when she's there and he comes in and he's made to feel like a misfit once again that nobody loves. I mean, it's just kind of almost heartbreaking. Oh, absolutely. I I love that finale. And you know, she does even though she is only in it for a few moments, you know, Elsa Lanchester as you know, the bride, she makes one hell of an impression, you know, uh, and she's absolutely striking as the bride. It's just um, it's so weird for me that they never revisited that character ever. She is still considered one of the iconic universal monsters. And yet, you know, whereas there were numerous sequels, you know, where all of the other uh, monsters, you know, would uh, pop in and out of them. We only see the bride for a couple of minutes, and that's it. You know, and that's that that that's still stunning to me. I, I agree with you. It, it is shocking, and I'm I'm slightly worried about Universal's dark universe. What they're going to do with the bride? Because that one's a big part of my childhood. So we'll, hopefully, they'll give it the respect it deserves. Yeah, I you know I I I was one of the rare few that didn't hate the Mummy, but I will say also that. It absolutely wasn't the movie that I wanted out of this burgeoning, you know, reboot. You know, I, I got to say, I, a lot of people didn't really care for the movie and it didn't do so well here in the States. But I thought Dracula Untold was a more a much more solid film than The Mummy. But that's just yeah. me. I, uh, I didn't hate it either. And I mean, it didn't play like a universal flick. It played like more like an action flick. Yeah. It was missing that atmosphere. And plus, they didn't concentrate on the mummy. They concentrated on Tom Cruise, basically. <laughs> yeah, which although I will say in in their. I, I, I'll try and dance around spoilers here for anyone who hasn't seen the mummy and is still interested in catching it at some point. I. I will say that that bummed me out watching the movie. I'm like, it's called The Mummy. This is meant to launch this new, you know, the the dark universe or whatever with uh, these new monsters. And yet we're spending so very little time with Sofia Batella's mummy and we're spending so much time with Tom Cruise. Why? And then you get to the final five or ten minutes of the movie and then it's like, oh, okay. well, I, I kind of understand why spending a whole lot of time with Cruz's character makes sense as far as building this universe out. I get it now, but 
it was still, you know, it was still such a weird experience watching that movie. Um, but I, I, I'm wishing them the best. I, I don't think it's too late for them to course correct and uh, focus on making the follow-ups, you know, closer in tune to what I imagine everybody would expect out of a Universal monster movie. I hope not anyway. And I got to say, I am curious to see if um, that rumor comes true that Angelina Jolie might play the bride because – you know, if they're aiming for talent of that sort to come in and bring these monsters to life or Javier Bardem as, you know, the monster, then they still have my attention. But uh, at the same time, I can't fool myself into thinking that um, if Jolie does play the bride, we're not going to get the Marge Simpson hairdo with the lightning bolt in it. You know, we're not we're never seeing that look again, I don't think. Yeah, I agree with you. Which is a shame. So, <laughs> so I got to ask uh, before we wrap up here. Uh, you were talking about the final moments of the movie, and you know, I recently rewatched the movie, and I was struck by something. I had always remembered Karloff's monster at the end. You know, just after allowing uh, Henry and Elizabeth to escape. You know, he tells the bride, "You stay. We belong dead." But in fact, on the rewatch this time, I realized that he's actually talking to Pretorius, you know, the uh, yes, <laughs> the, the man who's responsible for kicking the plot into motion, you know, and um, I'm not really willing to put this down to the Mandela effect or anything. But, you know, it seems more appropriate to me for the monster to tell the bride that, you know, it would make that final moment a bit more tragic, I think. And it still is. But with the line being directed at Pretorius, it, it feels like that final moment is more about vengeance in a way. Yeah, I agree. He definitely does. It, it just He's just so angry and hurt. It's just like, you're dying with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it is. I mean, I look, I love all of those movies. I think they're a blast in varying degrees. Uh, you know, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost. I, I love Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. But at the same time, so far as Karloff's version of that character goes, I I think Bride's finale was probably the best way for him to go out, you know? And, uh, of course, that didn't come to pass, but uh, it, it is such a great ending, I think. And it is curious, too, that they uh, they end there rather than uh, looping back and ending with the, uh, you know, what one thinks is going to be a book-ending sequence. You know, the movie opens with uh, Mary Shelley, you know, in this very meta scene, also played by Elsa Lanchester, you know, talking about the writing of the book and the fact that there's more story left to tell. It always felt like they were going to revisit that at some point, and they never do. Yeah, I, I would think I thought so, too. But they didn't, like you said. <laughs> All right. Well, before we wrap up, do you have any final parting thoughts about Bride of Frankenstein? Just that if you I'm sure most listeners have seen it, but if you hadn't watched it in a while, you should revisit it just to see just what an amazing. I mean, it's hard to say a movie's perfect, but to me, it's the closest to classics perfect that I've seen. So, yeah, I can't argue with that. Now, can I ask where can folks find you at online if you would like? And uh, what are you up to? Tell tell folks a bit about yourself. Um, you can find me on, I'm mostly on Twitter at brain of blood. Um, and I own a toy store in Ashland, Kentucky in the Cobble mall. And there's lots of horror stuff if you want to come out and see me and stuff like that. So I've been doing this shop for eight years now. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the show, sir. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Father knows best. Well, what's your stepfather going to do when he finds out? He's going to kill me. You had better believe it. All we need is a lawyer around here. Oh, that guy at Bellevue who killed his whole family. Cut him up with a knife. Maybe they disappointed him. Wait a minute. Who am I here? The Stepfather is a film uh, about a character named Jerry Blake um, who... 
uh, is attempting to create his own homespun American dream. Um, and he is constantly uh, in the face of change and alteration to what he believes that dream should be. And whenever faced with that change, uh, he tears that dream apart um, quite literally um, by, you know, murdering the group or family he's with and building a new life and doing it all over again. Um, and it's based on a real life uh, serial killer, um, which is makes the, the whole story that much more unnerving. Um, and it's headed by, uh, as I said, uh, Terry O'Quinn, uh, or, uh, who gives probably one of the best uh, genre performances, male performances I've ever seen. That was Paul Farrell talking about Joseph Rubin's 1987 horror thriller, The Stepfather. Mr. Farrell, thanks so much for being on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. Why choose The Stepfather to talk about? Well, um, I saw it for the first time on Halloween Day at about... Uh, and oddly, I can even tell you about the approximate time, about 8 a.m. on in 2009, <laughs> because every year on Halloween, I do an all day horror movie marathon and I actually log what I watch. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, because <laughs> I'm crazy. And no, that's uh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of times I do first time watches on Halloween. And that was my first time watch for The Stepfather. And the reason I chose it today is uh, I had found that movie on my own. I was not recommended to watch it. Um, nobody, I didn't see it on any top 10 lists, you know, which is how I, when I first started getting into horror, how I kind of decided what I was going to watch. I just kind of stumbled upon it. I saw that I saw that it was a shout factory release at, on DVD at the time. And, uh, that was enough for me. And I watched it and I was absolutely blown away. Um, and my initial thought after seeing the film was why has nobody grabbed me and made me watch this <laughs> <laughs> and i felt ever since that day uh it's one of the films that whenever somebody asks me for recommendations or what's a movie i should point them towards i i say that film because i think it's it's unsung uh in and how how much it did for the genre how how great of a film it is how effective it is um and how many sort of special ideas that it it puts forth by the end of the film yeah, and you pointed this out too. It is based on a real case, the uh, the John List murders, and there's something about that idea. The uh, you know, sort of the calm, mild mannered family man type holding this sort of rage, or I don't even know if you would call it rage, but holding this idea within him that he needs to reach a certain ideal. Otherwise, if he doesn't, then it's not worth having in the first place, and he's willing to, as you pointed out, tear it all apart in the in the sense that he. Well, he murdered his family. He murdered his family for not living up to what he thought that family should be. And then he just kind of, you know, went out into the world and tried to rebuild again. And that's there's something deeply unsettling about that, especially if you apply that notion to who, you know, looking at the movie, who Terry O'Quinn aspires to be, you know, uh, you, you imagine that he wants to live this sort of Ozzy and Harriet kind of life. And then you imagine a kind of monster living within that kind of world. It just it's an idea that gets under your skin and worms around a little bit. I think it's deeply unsettling. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, to your point, O'Quinn has this um, amazing ability to be simultaneously unnerving and yet like boorishly wholesome. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that that kind of line that he walks is terrible 
terrifying the entire film. And then the fact that his because his persona is is so layered um, in falseness, you know, it's like every every persona he moves from wasn't real to begin with. So you don't know who Jerry Blake is, even as a viewer, even with additional knowledge, like you don't know who he is. He's completely shrouded in anonymity. Um, and that makes like for every, every action, every motivation he has, you, you just don't know what's coming. You don't know why he's doing it. And you're forced to kind of fill in those blanks. Um, and, and you kind of get the sense that he views the American dream almost like, um, like a formula or an equation where yeah. there's certain, certain components that need to be there to get to the, it's like the quadratic equation. Like you need every component to get to the, the answer. And that's the only way it's going to work. And so he finds that and he, he builds it and he makes it. And then he has it for a little while, um, which is what's so impressive about what he's doing is he actually accomplishes his goal. But then the minute <laughs> one of those things changes and that's really Jerry's enemy is, is, is change. And I, I mean, I think we'll get to that, but you know, what I find fascinating is, you know, when you look at it like that, it's like you remove one component um, or taint it or change it. And then his equation doesn't add up. And then j- his persona no longer adds up and he completely fundamental mentally breaks down. So I think Jerry breaks down first because he's the answer to that equation that the American g- dream is equaling. Um, and then once he breaks down, he destroys the components of the equation because he's not Jerry anymore. He's whoever he actually is. And we don't have a name for that. And that's really terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I agree. And yeah, you mentioned O'Quinn too, and what it must have taken to bring that character to life and make him, you know, genuinely threatening at times, but also, like you pointed out, weirdly wholesome at times too, and yet grounding it all. I mean, he's he's such a great actor. He's always a solid performer in anything he appears in, you know, what with his, you know, he appeared in the X-Files. He was uh, a great movie from my childhood. The Rocketeer, he played Howard Hughes, you know, he was in yeah. um, Young Guns and Tombstone. But I wonder if we can't consider, you know, the stepfather, his signature role, you know, maybe, maybe Locke from Lost, but, you know, damn it, he's so good in this film. And inevitably, whenever you think the stepfather, you think him. Yeah, I I 100% agree. I mean, I was being, you know, I was introduced to Terry O'Quinn by way of Lost, as you mentioned. That was just how, the first thing I ever saw him in. But seeing the stepfather, that to me defines him as an actor, not and not to limit him, but I think because it shows what he can really do when he's allowed to do it. One of the nice things about you know, watching, especially from the 80s, uh, you know, like a like a lower, not a low budget, but a lower budget sort of off the radar horror film, especially one of this caliber where it's got a great script, as a lot of people that were very clearly passionate about the project, and not a big, huge name at the time, it allows for them to take risks. You know, it allows for them to do things that I just don't think you see in more of a mainstream film because there's there's less at risk to begin with. And then we get these really special performances like we saw out of Terry O'Quinn. Um, and it makes me wish that I, I wish he had done more sort of in that genre specifically because I, I love what he does in that film um, with that script and that character. 
Yeah, yeah, and it is. I you, you mentioned the script. You definitely have to give credit to, it to for how damn good the movie is because it was written by you know Donald E. Westlake, who was this great mm-hmm. sort of hard crime uh, novelist. And you know the story was co-written by Westlake, and I think it was um, was it Carolyn Lefcourt? I'm not really familiar with any of her other work, but it was also uh, the story was co-written by Brian Garfield. So between yeah. Westlake and Garfield. We have a film given to us by the creators of Parker and Death Wish, you know, and yeah, and right, one imagines right. like how, you know, the stepfather character might have fared in, say, you know, print form. You know, what kind of horrible adventures might he have gotten into? I mean, of course, you know, we had film sequels, but they all sort of, you know, they all kind of did the same thing. And I'm not knocking them. I actually think uh, Stepfather 2 and 3 are a lot of fun. But, you know, imagine the stepfather character in a long running series of novels had he survived. Well. Again, he did survive the events of the right. movie, but you know, I almost picture him as this Tom Ripley sort of figure, you know. And I kind of wish the film yeah. franchise had gone down some more interesting routes than they did. But uh, and I don't know, it, it that just occurred to me because of the men who helped give birth to him, you know, along with Carolyn Lefcourt. Like I, I would love to see like a hard case crime novel featuring that character in, you know. What what does that guy or what does the John List type look like when he's out in the world and he's not dealing with that equation that you mentioned, you know? Absolutely. Um, and I definitely see that. Like he, Well, and part of that is Terry O'Quinn, you know, again, create a character that feels like, you know, the best characters feel like they have existed and sort of will exist, assuming they don't get killed off or whatever it is, beyond the confines of the story you're watching. And he feels like he has a, a strong sense of history. He could have a strong sense of future. And you just want to watch him interact in the world, um, you know, and, and I kind of see him, you know, from a franchise perspective. You know, I think it's a really interesting twist because it came out kind of sort of after the boon of slashers. And, you know, he is sort of a mask killer uh, in yeah, this film. Totally. You know, he his mask is the persona he wears, you know, which is kind of fascinating. Like, you know, and that's what I love about the I love the beginning, like the opening of the film, just like sort of the deliberate sort of following him as his in- innocuous sort of getting ready in the morning, although he's, you know, washing blood off of his face. So it's clearly something's off, but yet it's shot in a way that's more like he's just getting ready for his day. But what you're <laughs> seeing is sort of the killer putting on his mask. Like you're seeing the killer getting ready for the day, um, you know, after a hard day's work or whatever it is, you know, kind of moving on to his life, which you actually don't normally get to see. It kind of reminds me of sort of, sort of like another version of the beginning of Halloween where it's like you kind of see the work of the killer and then you kind of, you know, whereas that's like unmasking and yet showing that the mask is sort of irrelevant for Myers with this. It's sort of, you know, he's masking up. It's like the adult version of somebody like that. You know, what, what do they become? They become Terry O'Quinn. You know, so I think it's, I think in a lot of ways the step fire is also an answer to a lot of what was happening with slashers and horror in general. It's sort of an evolution of that. Um, and I think it, it it's present in other films that came after it. Um, you know, I immediately I thought of like parents and things like that, where it's like another inverse of the American dream and sort of kind of obviously darkly humorous in that regard, but just playing with these things that we we think of as sitcom fodder and putting it in a completely different context. Um, but yeah, no, I, I totally agree that I think 
Terry O'Quinn's character would be a really fascinating one to watch over like a, a series or a book series, or really anything. <laughs> yeah, uh, to see more of that character. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned this notion of O'Quinn's character sort of wearing a persona like a mask, because I was going to ask you, watching the movie again, uh, a strange question hit me. I don't know that I'd really considered it that much in depth before, but do you feel watching the film as though the movie is a sort of Jekyll and Hyde story of duality? You know, is it about good and evil existing within a man and battling back and forth? Or do you think it's more the story of a monster wearing a mask? You know, at times it seems like he genuinely wants this ideal life where he is this beloved family man. You know, he wants mm-hmm. to be that good guy. And inevitably, you know, the, the the monster sort of rises in him. But at other times there's a sense that He's just a serial killer with an interesting yeah. hook. You know, yeah, he he changes identities. He adopts new families. But really, he has the same sort of ticking clock compulsion and cycle that, you know, any serial killer does, really. Right. And I, that's a really good question, because what that raises is if he and, and I think this gets to something bigger, because the, the idea is if he somehow accomplished his goal statically, would he ever kill again? Um you know, does he have to kill? Does he feel a need to kill? Um, I, I think I think it is about duality. I think that's that's very, very much there. Um, however, I think ultimately the way his persona is set up is that he is doomed to fail. But I think it's more of a commentary on the American dream than it is on him directly. And I'm sure it ties to sort of that anonymity of his past. And, and what I kind of mean about that is there's a scene uh, where he's with his wife when he kind of like, you know, when they, they show them being intimate together and she says something about, we got to think about the future. And he goes, there is no future. There is no past. There's only present. There's just the <laughs> present, you know? And he like, and he gets like really intense and that's like early in the film. And then, you know, there's a lot of stuff about, and, and that's why I think about the American dream, the American, the concept of the American dream is very much set in the present, right? It's, it's about, you're a middle-aged man, you have a wife, you have kids. It's about the relationships that you're supposed to have with those people. And it stays the same. You know, your kids don't grow up. They don't start dating. Like there's all these like rules to it because it's about a present static thing that doesn't change. Whereas, you know, everything changes. And that's the inherent issue with what Jerry's trying to achieve. And what the American dream is telling us to achieve is that it isn't that the American dream doesn't exist. It's that it doesn't last. <laughs> and therefore, Jerry's reality, his, his, his equation can never last. And therefore, he's always going to do what he does. So I don't believe there's a reality where Jerry could ever not kill again. But I think it's more based on the weird psychosis he's developed of trying to achieve this thing that he can't get, um, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, no, I think that's a perfect sort of summation of the movie, and I can't think of a better place to stop. Unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time, sir. But can I ask, can you uh, tell folks a bit about yourself, and where can they find you out online? Uh, yeah, um, so I'm very active on Twitter. <laughs> uh, my Twitter handle is Paul is great 2000. <laughs> I'm not as full of myself as I sound. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, a little bit about me. Uh, I actually graduated from cinema and photography uh, in uh, Carbondale. So I do have a degree in, in uh, cinema and photography. So I do uh, short films and things like that for fun on my own mainly. I do write uh, re- for the very first time. I've recently been posting articles. So I have 
uh, article up on Screamcast, uh, their website, and uh, I have my own little blog, Paul Spooky Blog, which is linked to my Twitter. So if you're interested in reading what I have to say, uh, there will be things there periodically. Uh, and oh, and I just uh, started doing an actual podcast of my own uh, with really? a couple other people online. Yeah, we just recorded our first episode last week. Um, so that's an experiment for me. Uh, so you're actually really the second thing I've done podcast wise, uh, in a lot of ways, um, which is cool, which is really exciting for me. What is uh, the, uh, what's the name of the podcast? Uh, it's going to be called dead ringers. Um, and it's a horror podcast, obviously. And, uh, the idea of it, it it was, uh, created, um, there's a, another Twitter friend of mine. He goes by Cronenberg Nolan, um, on Twitter, but he came up with the idea of selecting, uh, unlikely sort of horror films that share DNA, um, and then having a discussion around them. Um, and the, uh, you know, and so it's sort of a, sort of like, sort of like yours, only more of a double feature type idea. And then we discuss each film and talk about, uh, kind of what conclusions can be drawn when pairing them together. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's coming up here. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when it's going to post <laughs> cause I'm not the one editing it. Uh, but when it does, I will plaster it all over my Twitter feed. So yeah, absolutely. Let us know. That? Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a little bit about me. <laughs> very cool. All right. Well, sir, thank you so much for coming on the show and for choosing such a cool film to talk about. We very much appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. It means a lot. Secret society exists and is living among all of us. They're neither people nor animals, but something in between. Monstrous mutations and violent natures must be satisfied. But I have proof, and tonight I'm going to show you something. Make you believe. I was terrified by this movie, like, throughout my childhood. I think that, you know, for its its time, it was terrifying. It, uh, it, It had me scared of werewolves for a very, very long time. That was Destiny McCulloch talking about Joe Dante's 1981 werewolf film, The Howling. Ms. McCulloch, thanks so much for being on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, let's dive in. Out of all the horror movies you might have chosen, why go with The Howling? Um, well, like I said, it was probably one of the first movies my dad introduced me to, and my dad's a horror fanatic, too. And <laughs> it, just, it absolutely petrified me for years. Oh, it is a great one. Now, I got to ask, I, The Howling's great, but it seems like, you know, I have this theory there are almost two types of diehard horror fans, those that prefer The Howling or those that prefer An American Werewolf in London. So if you've chosen The Howling, I got to imagine that you lean toward that one more so than An American Werewolf? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Very cool. And it is, you know, it is a really cool movie. It's a beautiful movie, too. Watching it again, it's... It has this great sort of almost comic booky look at times, which, uh, you know, a lot of people don't talk about that much. I remember when the DVD came out, not that, oh, well, I say not that long ago. It's been like 15 years. Good God, I'm getting old. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I remember on the DVD, uh, Joe Dante talking about, you know, not merely shooting a collar film, but, you know, uh, or shooting a movie in collar, but shooting a collar film. And, you know, the the movie is very vibrant looking, which is kind of strange, you know, that the fact that there are all these terrible events happening in the movie and yet it's also pretty at the same time. It is. 
that it is. You know, I didn't I didn't know the budget was as big as it was either because it wasn't it wasn't like an an extraordinary, you know, like they didn't have like really it looked like they didn't have expensive props. Yeah, yeah, I I I imagine early 80s, you know, even for being a creature feature, the the budget was kind of paltry, definitely. I uh although I got to say like you know, there are still some incredible effects in the movie by uh, Rob Bottin, you know, the guy who did uh, all the creature effects on the thing, you know, and I'm I'm thinking especially of like uh, Eddie Quist's transformation near the end of the movie, which is just amazing. You know, I, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe an American werewolf in London, you know, maybe that transformation might be better so far as the technical skill involved. But I think the Howling's transformation is much more disturbing and terrifying, I think. Yeah, I think I that's I think that's why I leaned more towards the howling because I think it gave me more of a okay, well, you know, whenever she I guess was underneath the cabin and it was like broad daylight that it made me not want to go in the woods for a long time. It's funny because when you watch the movie, I mean there are there are in jokes and tributes to older movies and it's populated by these really fun older character actors and it does have kind of like this vein of wicked sort of dark humor running throughout but at the same time when it's scary it is genuinely scary at times you're right it's absolutely frightening absolutely absolutely and you know the villain is so the main villain anyway quist is just he's such a nasty character in a way and such a great villain uh which is just bizarre to think that he's played by the guy who eventually played like a medical hologram in star trek but i mean his performance in it is really fantastic yeah, and uh, like I said, the, the transformation, I, I really thought that, all, you know, all of their transformations were, you know, very well done. Yeah, especially with, like, the bladder effects and, you know, the, the pulsating mm-hmm. skin and, you know, the, the the sort of when the werewolf chest starts to, like, burst forth and, you know, the, the, the snout starts elongating. it uh it, It's so just sort of icky and creepy, but kind of cool for all of that. Especially for the time period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, these were, you know, groundbreaking movies at the time. You know, between that and Werewolf, I, um, you know, unfortunately, I didn't discover those movies mm-hmm. until like much, much later on. But, um, yeah. you know, I, one can only imagine what audiences must have made in the early '80s, having not seen anything quite like that before. Oh, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was terrifying. But it, you know, it only got a 66 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which I mean, I, I don't know. I don't understand that because, like I said, I thought the movie was phenomenal i try not to put too much stock in the rotten tomatoes myself uh yeah you know if something gets a 100 or a 98 or something like that it's like okay maybe enough people love it there is something worth checking out there but i i can't really you know i i I take the negative rotten tomato scores with uh, a load of salt personally just because i you know there are so many great movies out there that have relatively low scores it's like i don't I, i i can't trust this yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, can I ask you? Obviously, like the first movie, uh, how do you feel about the franchise as a whole? Have you read any of the books, the the Gary Brandner books, or uh, how do you feel about the film sequels that followed up the original? You know, honestly, I watched. I think I'm. I'm trying to think of. Were there two or three sequels? I'm not. I'm not like 100 percent positive. I think there's like 27 at this point. Uh, no, well, no, no, no. I, I lost. I might be lost. <laughs> I, I've honestly lost track. I think there are 
Oh, gosh. Let's see. There's The Howling. There's Your Sister's a Werewolf. Uh, there's the third one, whatever it's called. I think the fourth one is The Original Nightmare, which is essentially just another adaptation of the original novel. There's – I think there's one called, like, The Marsupials or something. I think there's <laughs> – I think there's probably, like, seven or eight Howling movies, and then there's kind of, like, a loose Twilighty reboot that came out a few years ago called The Howling Reborn. But honestly, I – I'm a franchise fanatic. Whenever I find out that there's a long-running series, it doesn't really matter the quality so much. I feel sort of compelled as a horror fan to try and collect them all. But yeah. And I, I sort of went through my howling kick about two years ago. But weirdly enough, like I tried to pursue watching all of those sequels. And um, at a certain point, I just – I kind of – I had to hang it up. I it's they they get progressively worse with each one. I in fact I think there's one that's they really not even, do. There's one that's either I I want to say it's like shot on video. Maybe it was only released direct to video, but I don't think it actually has an official release here in the U.S. because it's uh oh everything I've read about it it sounds like it made the worst sequels before it looked like the first movie. So I yeah I, I don't know if I have it in me to. Uh, to get around to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I was pretty disappointed in the sequels. I mean, the, the Howling is a movie that you really, nothing can touch it. Like, a, there is no sequel that they can make that can compare to the original. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it is strange that it hasn't really been subject to the reboot treatment yet. You know, we've had so many classic titles and even, you know, arguably some not-so-classic titles get trotted out in new forms over the last, you know, Decade and a half uh, or so. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, actually, Psycho is coming up on 20 years, which is, again, I'm getting old. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, it's weird to think uh, for the recognition of that title, you know, The Howling. It's strange that we haven't had a proper uh, remake. You know, one imagines a big budgeted, uh, you know, feature film version of it, you know, uh, like a remake that is, you know, hitting theaters yeah. again. And it's just it, it hasn't happened yet, which leads me to wonder whether or not out of all of those classic 80s horror movies, if The Howling is perhaps a bit underloved. I mean, I don't I don't know. I would really I wouldn't mind to see maybe one of the one of the newer generations horror directors kind of maybe pick it up and try, you know, like a little project with it or something just to see what they can get. But horror movies nowadays really disappoint me. Like whenever they say, oh, um, new, new horror movies coming out, whatever, I'm like, okay, well, I'd, I wouldn't really consider if it doesn't scare me, if it startles me, then it's not horror. If it scares me, it's horror. So would you say you prefer older horror t- as opposed to uh, any of the stuff that's come out in the last, say, 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, there are exceptions like... I really did enjoy like all the all the Halloween reboots that Rob Zombie did. I really did enjoy those because they were just insane, and I loved that. But most of it, like I just watched Bye Bye Man the other day, it was awful. You know, I'm not I'm not a fan of newer stuff. Yeah, I you know stuff like that too. Fortunately, you can kind of see you know coming from a distance like the the bye bye man the trailers that i caught for that in theaters it's just kind of like you know what i i i've gotten to this point in my fandom i think where i don't have to see everything that comes out i don't need to watch every brand new horror movie that hits theaters back in the day i did it was it was this weird sort of collector mentality where you know i would travel great distances to watch the smaller movies which inevitably you know I, most of the time would reward me but you know even stuff like the bye bye man or the the larger budgeted or at least larger you know or rather the wider released 
um, horror films like that. You know, they're not there's been a lot of good stuff that's come out recently, but. You know, if the trailer doesn't capture me anymore, I no longer feel the need to uh, catch it. I, I skipped the Bye Bye Man. I skipped Wish Upon. I skipped uh, – oh, gosh, I forget the other movies that I've skipped because I, you know, I just – I find myself caring less, which kind of bums me out in a way. But at the same time, it gives me more time to rewatch movies that I love. Yeah, I mean, it is really sad that – I feel like horror has kind of lost – like. I don't want to say lost its touch because it's not that obviously it's not the genre's fault. It's the people, it's the directors that pick it up. I think that they're trying to adapt to younger minds and they don't, they don't really care about people that have actually been horror fans for a very long time. And they just kind of want to go with, Oh, well let's, let's just make these kids jump and and it's fine. You know, that we'll call it horror. Like that's not, to me, that's not what makes a horror movie. I don't, cause um, you know, some horror movies don't make me jump. They just they make me like, oh my god, that's so cool! Like Evil Dead, the remake of Evil Dead, so good, and I didn't jump, but I thought it was phenomenal. Yeah, that was more. I will say the Evil Dead remake. I don't know that it was ever jump out of your seat scary, but I did. You know, there was this very white knuckles sort of feeling that I had throughout the entire movie, where the tension just kept getting ratcheted up further and further and further. So I don't know what what do you think as a fan? What do you think you're missing from newer horror that the older horror films had? Like, is it a stylistic thing? Is it a matter of the effects? Is it story? Um, is it sort of the concerns that the filmmakers have so far as how they go about scaring people? I mean, I really think that it is the genuine concerns of, you know, the directors, like I said, they don't, they don't really, they don't care how they leave the audience feeling after they leave. They just want to make them jump while they're in the theater and that's it. They don't, they don't put, they don't put a lot of thought and a lot of effort and a lot of caring into the movie that they make that, you know, this movie's going to be a classic 35 years from now because like, obviously, Bye Bye Man is not going to be a classic, you know, <laughs> 30 years from now or any, you know, uh, I can't remember the name of that movie. It was like, um, started with an O and it was about like the mirror. I can't, cannot remember the Oculus. name of that movie though. Yes. That's not going to be a classic either. And I, oh, I just feel I like, admit, that, I I feel like it's Oculus. all the same. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, it was all right. But like I said, they want, I feel like all of them are just becoming the same thing because I feel like Bye Bye Man was so much like Ouija. Ouija, my bad. And um, I still don't know what know, the proper pronunciation of that is, so I just go back and forth, and whenever somebody calls me on it, I just I sort of roll with whatever the pronunciation is. Any listeners right. out there, if you have any idea how it's properly pronounced, please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be appreciated. Yeah, but I, I, I know what you're saying, and it does seem like the genre is sort of preoccupied now with uh, the same sort of uh, paranormal thrillers, you know, that, yeah. uh, you know, and the genre is cyclical, certainly. I mean, we had the torture porn, and I do hate that phrase, but the torture porn run in like the mid aughts before that, there was the sort of preoccupation with J horror and, you know, and then going further back, we had like, uh, sort of the satirical slashers in the wake of scream. So I got to hope though. I mean, it feels like we've been getting a, v- and again, I don't want to paint the genre with two, uh, large brushes work, but uh, it feels like after Paranormal Activity, we've gotten some variations on the same type of movie uh, yeah. over and over and over. And it's like, you know, we're going on a decade at this point. I'm 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 eagerly awaiting the new cycle, whatever that looks like. You know, I, I might regret that when we eventually get it. Who knows what it will wind up being. But it feels like it's time for a change. Yeah, like I'm, I'm really looking forward to the release of it that, you know, it comes out next month. And I really hope that I'm not disappointed by the remake because, like I said, the original is 
fantastic. You know, you can't compete with it. But I would really like to see a creative mind in this, you know, like in this generation, pick up on, you know, maybe take some tips from some older directors and, you know, scare the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, that's pretty much our time. Thank you so much for being on. Can I ask, can you uh, tell folks a bit about yourself and where can we find you at online? Well, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. All you have to do is look up Hell Child and you'll find me on Instagram. Um, um, I'm pretty sure I changed it to Hell Child on Twitter, too, but... Uh, I'm just a, a mom who loves horror movies. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Very cool. Hey, thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate your being here and for choosing such a cool movie to talk about. All right, no problem. Thank you very much for having me. Boys, keep up the moors. Stick to the roads. The best of luck. <laughs> Tomorrow night's the full moon. You're going to change. Please let me help you. I love you, David. This film has had such a huge impact on me. Uh, ever since I was a little kid, because I grew up obsessed with werewolves. It started with Michael Jackson's Thriller, then moved on to Monster Squad, and then it progressed to this masterpiece. And I would just love the comedy and the horror just mashed together. The effects, the music, everything, it just gels into this perfect horror experience for me. That was Travis Williams talking about John Landis's classic 1981 horror comedy, An American Werewolf in London. In addition to his appearance here, he can also be heard on the Talk Nerdy to Me offshoot podcast, Video Store Rejects. So be sure to give that a listen. Mr. Williams, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, you and I know each other. We've known each other for about, oh gosh, going on, what would you say? 13 years. 12, 13 years. Wow. I'd say so. So I know you are a horror fan, sir. Now, i got to ask, out of all the horror movies I know you've seen, why choose an American Werewolf in London? I've always been a werewolf guy ever since I was a little kid. Um, I think, I don't know, there's just something about the duality and the the, uh, the haunted man, the cursed man aspect that that it just you know it kind of speaks to me. And my dad introduced me to the Wolfman when I was a little kid. And, of course, Michael Jackson's Thriller is in there and Monster Squad and seeing the transformations. I was always just enthralled by that, and it just kind of stuck with me into adulthood. Fair enough. I love werewolf movies, too, especially The Wolfman. I think The Wolfman, the original Universal movie, might actually be my favorite werewolf flick. If not that, then maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe, I, I got to admit, I'm a sucker for ginger snaps, and I love dog soldiers, too. But, uh, you know, it's yep, funny. love those, too. <laughs> we just had a guest on who chose The Howling, and I, uh, you know, I pointed out to her that I've always felt there are, like, two types of diehard horror fans when it comes to werewolf movies. You know, you're either kind of a an American werewolf kind of guy, or, you know, you're you're kind of a howling fan, and, uh, which is silly. Uh, I'm, I'm, you can be fans of both, of course, but, yeah, it seems like... More often than not, it seems like somebody will lean more towards one than the other. I mean, they both came out in the same year. They're both known for their effects. So uh, out of those two, why is it, would you say, that an American werewolf uh, works better for you? And more so than most other werewolf flicks, even. Uh, I think it's John Landis's sensibilities and how he presents the material. Um, it's just such an odd 
and refreshing way to present horror when you're you know you're making people laugh and then two seconds later you're terrifying them with those dream sequences or the transformation sequence and all the gore and this the visceral quality of it yeah and you know i i do love the humor in it i i love that mix uh i mean you know when you look at the uh the howling Mm -hmm. there is that you know there's kind of like a vein of dark humor in there but more than anything it is a horror film you know you you think american werewolf i mean you get you get sort of laughs and shocks in equal measure, I think. And that's one of the things that I love about it. Although I got to admit, I, and this is going to be sacrilege. Uh, I, I've never seen an American werewolf in London as being like this kind of perfect movie. I recognize that it's a classic, but I, I, I've always been, I, I feel like I've always been held at kind of like arm's length from the movie. And I don't know why all these years later, you know, it was one of the first DVDs that I ever bought, uh, after I got my first DVD player back in, my God, like 97, 98. So, uh, and I'd seen it on VHS before that. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen the movie and what I love about it, I adore. But, there, you know, there are these things that I like. The movie sort of feels wonkily kind of paced to me, which is not something that I generally bitch about. But mm-hmm. the the storytelling to me, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, like the storytelling feels a little lopsided at times. You know, I'm thinking of how long it takes to get to that First transformation, you know, not that I don't appreciate that we get to know the characters first. You know, I love that. But, you know, and even down to the finale, it always felt kind of, you know, just a tad off to me. But the film still works, I think, because of that mix of horror and humor and because of how likable the characters are. You know, I love David. I love Alex. You know, love Jack. You know, the the writing, you know, the strength of those characters sort of carries me through the – what I see, personally what I see as the dodgier moments throughout the film and uh, until – you know, I got to say, once David fully leaves the movie, you know, as he must, given the tale that's being told, but I I kind of tune out. You know, I kind of don't care when it's just him rampaging around, you know, at least not as much. But uh, I don't know. Do you think I'm completely silly for feeling that way? Not at all. It's it's far from a perfect film. Uh, you know, uh, nostalgia is a very... Uh, it's a very powerful thing in our lives, and I think that fuels some of my love for this movie, but not all of it. It, it is a little bit uh, awkward in its pacing. I think it kind of has a slump in the middle when he's just kind of twiddling his thumbs uh, at the nurse's apartment. You know, <laughs> that he they have sex, and then he's just kind of goofing around playing with Mickey Mouse dolls. You know, and <laughs> and then the end is is kind of abrupt, but um, I just think it's so. I think the end is so thrilling, starting with that subway scene where he's stalking the guy and you you don't really even see him you just see from the point of view until the very end when he steps into frame from far away i think that shot's brilliant and then all the way up to the the piccadilly circus and all those scenes are just just fantastic and they're just very well staged for me and and that's just thing that's how it works for me and and of course the the biggest strength is the effects the physical the makeup Heck, they even created an Oscar category because of this movie, which not many movies can claim that. So I think Rick Baker is really the the true hero that makes this movie elevated to what it is, in, in my mind at least. And it is genius. I mean, that scene, you know, we were, you know, just a few moments ago, we were talking about The Howling. And I, you know, I mentioned to the previous guest that... Um, you know, if I feel like an American werewolf in London's transformation is perhaps better on a technical level, the Howling's is more 
creepy and terrifying. But that, but I wasn't knocking an American werewolf in London for that because I don't think Landis sets out to make that scene necessarily disturbing in a way. You know, scary certainly, but um, mm-hmm. but yeah, but that that scene is a showstopper. I mean, that is one of the greatest sequences I think in all of horror movies, and that's down to Baker's genius. And it also bums me out to think that. Uh, that we were so close to having another werewolf movie with him working on it that he, you know, he was going to provide effects for the uh, the Universal remake of The Wolfman, which seems like a perfect uh, pairing, and yet we get so little of his genius in that it feels like. Well, he did I, he did the makeup right. He did. He didn't he did. do the he didn't do the transitions, the transformations. Yeah, and imagine but, what he might have done with a budget that I'm sure that they had. To work with there, like I, I, I can only imagine what we were robbed of, but that's okay because oh, we yeah. can go back it's... to an American Werewolf and see something mm-hmm. that's still, you know, what is it now? Nearly forty years on, um, and it's oh, still... yeah, it's almost almost forty. That's insane. It's crazy. it was thirty. Yeah, the, they they put the thirty five year Blu Ray out a couple years ago, so yeah, it's pushing forty. Oh, God, but it's still you know you look back at it, there is not one second in that transformation sequence that is dated. There isn't one second that doesn't work. I don't think. It's not. And and it's in it's in full lighting. You know, the, there's there's nothing hiding it. There's nothing to uh kind of pull pull the strings. It's just in plain sight in in the camera and they're just just basically showing off like hey, look what we can do. And I think that's a cool juxtaposition with the the uh, howling because the howling it's a much more it's a much different trend transformation but you know this one the howling is in the dark and this one is light and um the howling is more you know terrifying i think and this one of course has is it this is it a sam cook song playing behind it the blue moon and like all all the songs throughout the entire movie are about moons and they're they're kind of ironic and i find it pretty funny (laughs) i'm pretty sure it's a sam cook song but yeah, it reminds me of uh, – God, this is a weird aside. Uh, apologies. Please bear with me for this. But it reminds me that in college I uh, – you know, I love that sequence so much and I watched it so many times, more so than just the movie itself. But um, one of our projects was to marry a song to a music video that we shot. And so a buddy and I shot like this really lo-fi like werewolf transformation set to uh, Credence's Bad Moon Rising. Um, nice. <laughs> And it was my total homage to like an American werewolf in London, which uh, maybe three people in my class got. So uh, that was a bummer. But, you know. Yeah, it's the Southern Ohio people aren't really going to latch on to that very often. (laughs) (laughs) There are a handful of us. We're we're here. We're just, we like to stay hidden. So Few in numbers. (laughs) So I got to ask, okay, so you love an American werewolf in London. How, um, I always try and take a larger view uh, and look at the franchises that certain movies spawn. Can I ask how you feel about uh, the, the follow-up, uh, An American Werewolf in Paris? Oh, it's a dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> it is so bad it, you <laughs> on know, so many levels. When I watched it as a kid, I saw it. I remember that Bush song being everywhere and seeing the uh, the music video uh, with uh, Julie Delpy and thinking that the movie, the resulting movie, might be kind of cool because, you know, the, the song was all right and the music video was kind of cool and stylish. And the guy who made the movie was the same guy who did Mute Witness, which is a damn good film. But then then you watch the I, I remember not being impressed with the movie then. I tried to rewatch it about two years ago. It fails on almost every level. Like there are the, – the, the, the shots don't even cut together into coherent sequences. Yeah, for, it's, it's forgetting a pretty, that, 
It's a pretty bad movie. It, um, I, there is something that I do like. I like the concept of the werewolf society, like the underground cult, even though I don't think it's executed very well. But the idea of that, I think that in, in better hands, they could have done something cool with that. Yeah, and the idea that they, what is it, they carry around syringes that they'd inject themselves with so they can prompt like a moonless transformation if they would like, you know, stuff like mm-hmm. that. Which is kind of, yeah, you're right, it's a neat idea, but at the same time, like, at any point when you're watching an American werewolf in London, in the back of your mind, are you like, I wonder if there's this werewolf cult out there that David could, you know, run afoul of. Or, you know, mm-hmm. it's just such a bizarre way to, to go sequelize. And plus the, uh, I mean, they followed up one of the, greatest horror movies so far as practical effects go with some of the dodgiest CG that has ever graced screens or yeah, I, would put, I would put that CG on the level of uh, Spawn and Mortal Kombat right on that that plane <laughs> very true although you know it's funny an American Werewolf in Paris isn't necessarily I mean might be a bit of a stretch but I'll say it's not necessarily the only follow up that an American Werewolf in London had. Did you ever see the Masters of Horror episode Dear Woman? I did. Uh thank you let me borrow it. You let me borrow that and Cigarette Burns. Yeah, those are the two best ones in the first season. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. It's I loved Dear Woman. I think it's great. It's obviously set in the same universe because uh I think the Brian Benben character makes a reference to uh to to werewolf in that but um but yeah the not only that i think it feels tonally like a perfected version and i'm not saying like it's better than an american werewolf in london but i'm saying the mix of horror and humor almost mm-hmm. feels sharper in dear woman like landis had learned a few new tricks and he had managed to hone like his abilities in the years since and it also makes me realize too that i i kind of miss john landis like oh I, me too i'm always lamenting the fact that he's been kind of blacklisted yeah you think he's about- one of those he's one of those directors who his his filmography just speaks for itself in the early 80s i mean just hit after hit after hit i mean he's got my favorite horror movie american werewolf and then he, one of my favorite comedies Blue, blues brothers you know i mean the guy is a genius but i think that twilight zone incident kind of hurt him for for good which is a shame because I'd done more reading about that. You know, it's funny last night doing a bit of research and I inevitably, you know, when looking up his bio, I sort of followed a few things down the, that Twilight Zone path. And it just it seems uh, kind of unfair in a way that we were robbed of. Uh, I, I, I don't know how to articulate this. It, it seems unfair that we were robbed of the career that he might have had had that incident not happened. You know what I mean? I could imagine mm-hmm. him sitting in a much different place now if that hadn't happened. I mean, maybe it didn't affect his career. You know, who can say? But it, it certainly feels like it did. And I, I definitely miss his work. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. But uh, and I not only him. I mean, you think about a lot of the directors who were working at that time. I mean, you have not only him. We were talking about The Howling. I mean, where the hell is Joe Dante? You know, I... <laughs> He's making trailers from hell. That's one thing. Yeah, <laughs> there is that, which is awesome. <laughs> That's a plus. And yeah, and like John Carpenter, a lot of these guys who had such a huge impact in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even in a little bit into the 90s, they've either been just brushed aside, or I, I, don't, I don't know, I, I guess just the Hollywood landscape just doesn't, uh, just doesn't fit their sensibilities nowadays, which breaks my heart, you know, because it means it doesn't fit my sensibilities either because I really connect with those guys. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we grew up with them and it would be very neat to see like 
I would love to see them be as prolific as they were back in the day. You know, damn it. I, you mentioned John Carpenter. We, where the hell is he? Why isn't he making movies anymore? He He's, he's touring with his band. Which is cool. <laughs> that yeah, is cool. I, I, I'd love to see that. I would love to go see one of those shows. But, you know, you watch, uh, you watch Cigarette Burns, that Masters of Horror episode. Like, he had been, I don't know, in self-imposed exile or something for a half a decade at that point when he made that and it showed that he still had the chops. I didn't really care so much for his Masters of Horror follow-up. Was it pro-life, I think? Uh, I thought it was a little... But, um, you know, and then he did The Ward, which didn't feel like a John Carpenter movie, necessarily. No. But, um... And you got to think maybe age plays into that. You know, maybe lack of passion. You know, there, there's so many factors that could come in there. And honestly, he, he seems content just okaying remakes of his movies and sitting at home playing sports video games from <laughs> from interviews I've heard. He just he just likes to go home and play PlayStation. Well you know what? <laughs> given given what he gave us and you know what Landis gave us and Dante has given us and all of those guys, you know, from back in the day, like if they elected to not make anything else anymore and they just wanted to, you know, enjoy their retirement, I don't think we could begrudge them that because my God, look at what not they at all. did gift the world. So Yeah, they they made their mark. <laughs> All right, sir. Well, unfortunately, I think we've just about reached the uh, the end of our time. Can I ask, do you have any final thoughts on An American Werewolf in London? Uh, I just think it's just such a fantastic tongue-in-cheek horror-slash-comedy, and it walks this tightrope between those two genres, and it pulls it off beautifully. And um, I, I don't think we mentioned Griffin Dunn enough because he's so great in that movie as the walking meatloaf. I really and, loved uh, him in the new uh, the new Tom Cruise mummy film. <laughs> I I thought about bringing that up today, but I figured we wouldn't have time. <laughs> I, I was pretty offended by the blatant ripoff that they did with that. With uh, I can't even remember the guy's name. It's the guy from New Girl, and he was in Jurassic World. I don't know, but it was it was pretty shameless how they <laughs> just ripped that off. That and Life Force, man. So, mm-hmm. where can folks find you at online? Uh, well, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, uh, FilmTrav606. Um, I do Instagram, but not not that often. Uh, you can find me on there. I think I'm Trav606. Um, other than that, uh, the Video Store Rejects podcast, me and my friend Jonathan do that. And I think that's about it. Awesome. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your coming on to talk about such a great movie. No problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Look, the situation is that apparently a great white shark has staked a claim in the waters off Amity Island. A big one. And any shark expert in the world will tell you it's a killer. It's a man-eater. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. I'll catch this bird for you. It ain't going to be easy. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. You're going to need a bigger boat. Jaws tells the story of uh, this seemingly massive shark that is terrorizing, um, you know, beach community, and it's tasked with kind of an odd group of characters to take them out. Um, initially thought of as more of a drama and thriller, it's got so many horror aspects within the film that really uh, make it one of the most terrifying movies that is out there. That was Christopher Talmadge talking about Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic, Jaws. Mr. Talmadge, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, i got to ask, out of any horror movie you might have gone with, why choose Jaws? 
Uh, it was actually really tough to pick just one movie since there's so many great and iconic ones out there. Um, but I kind of took it on a more personal level and I thought, you know, what movies still kind of scare and terrify me um, even now as I'm getting older? And I can only think of two, uh, one of which was Jaws and the other one's The Exorcist. But, you know, I, I think you already interviewed two people about The Exorcist and kind of <laughs> talked to, to death. But uh, I think I still would pick Jaws over The Exorcist. Um, it's got just so many great elements about it. It's got a fantastic um, you know, group of actors in it. Roy Scheider, who I think is incredibly underrated. Um, and you know, he's in this trifecta with Robert Shaw, who you know, w- with this movie as well as From Russia With Love is up there and you know, some of the greatest actors that we've ever had. And then you stick uh, um, you know, Richard Dreyfuss in there for kind of the, the humor aspect of it a little bit. But just the dynamics between the three of them is, is perfect. And then um, you, know, you have a movie that's seemingly more focused on being an adventure movie, but it's got some pretty scary set pieces. And I think that has to do with the fact that it's an actual uh, shark. You know, We have a lot of movies now that has so much reliance on CGI, but there's something about a shark being you know, physically there with the actors that they can touch and interact with and sometimes get eaten by. Um, <laughs> but it just makes for that much more of a, a realistic and uh, visceral experience. And I don't care what anybody says. I, I still think it looks pretty real, even when I watch it nowadays. Oh, totally. And, you know, there is that great mix of actual shark photography with uh, with a big animatronic shark that they had. But I, I agree. There's something about there's something being there sharing the same physical space as the actors. It just sells it much better than, uh, you know, even the best CG possibly can. In fact, I mean, there even shark movies that I like that employ CG, you know, I, I, I it, it takes a bit of effort to look beyond the fact that it is just a computer generated effect. I will say that I, I didn't wind up caring for the movie so much because of the final two minutes. It was such a, uh, uh, such an insulting sort of rug pull on the <laughs> audience. But did you see uh, 47 meters down, which just came out? I did, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I enjoyed 47 Meters Down, not so much the twist, same as you, but um, same thing with The Shallows. I thought The Shallows is really great. Yeah, But w- w- when you start to see more and more and more of the shark, you start to see kind of the cracks in the CGI. Um, you know, it's a little scary at first, but the more you're looking at it, you're like, oh, I could tell that's you know fake, and it doesn't kind of have the same pull that say, you know, a lot of these other movies have like Jaws with the actual shark or the the special effects that they used in John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean, there's just something about the physicality of it being there that you can tell it's real and it just kind of affects you a little bit more. I agree. And, you know, Jaws, I think, is certainly the best at that. And even arguably the sequels, even for his... Uh... Well, the law of diminishing returns was certainly in effect there. But, uh, you know, the the sharks were always... Actually, I can't even complete that thought because I realized I'm full of of shit on that one because the shark in part four does look pretty terrible. I don't care if it's practical or not. When he he lifts out of the water and it's just – I think his tiny little flipper is the only thing that's still submerged and the rest of them is just sort of hanging out above the water. It's like, guys, guys, no. Not only – not only that is that they like gave it like a sound effect like it was roaring or something you know like it made it sound like a lion it was like like just ridiculous he was Um, the angriest damn shark any of those movies saw (laughs) 
I, I will say one thing about Jaws 4. That was the first Jaws that I ever caught. Uh, I, I caught glimpses of it as a kid when I w- shouldn't have been watching oh, it. Oh, really? I was very, very young. And, uh, you know, I saw Mario Van Peebles getting uh, eaten, at least in one version of the movie, right? But uh, <laughs> I actually had a recurring dream, and I'm certain it's the revenge's fault, but a recurring dream where uh, I was chased and eaten by a shark. And literally every night when I would go to bed, I would have this damn dream of getting chased and eaten by a shark so i i just hate sharks i i don't ever see the need to go out into the ocean i you know i if movies have taught me anything it's a terrible things happen when you go into the ocean or in space and i don't plan on going into either so uh yeah that's really funny you bring that up because i think that's why the movie scares me so much um i've i've lived in new jersey my entire life um so every summer we would take a, a week down at the beach and my dad would have to bring the damn VHS tape of Jaws to show it to us every single summer. You know, and I'm like five years old, so of course I spent more time at the pool than the beach. But I think just that, you know, it, it, it scarred me psychologically, and I can't even ever get over it. So even now, if I'm swimming, i got to make sure that there's at least you know 20 other people around me so my odds of getting attacked are uh, much less. But I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, it's been floating around the internet. I guess in some places you can watch Jaws outside on a big screen while sitting in a tube in a lake or something. Like, oh, fuck people that. People are clearly out of their minds. Yeah. I I could barely but, uh, get through, like, getting into a four-foot swimming pool as a kid because of that damn movie. I can't even imagine what it would be like watching it on a large body of water. Well, I, I'm glad I'm not the only one that had this irrational fear because I'm the exact same way. Yeah, <laughs> just like, yeah, I no, can't handle it. <laughs> but you know, even shark aside, I mean, just the way that Spielberg, uh, his direction is so like perfectly calibrated, like with this film. It's amazing that he was only what like 25, 26 when he made it. But I mean, oh, you know, forty forty some years on now, like I, I just saw the movie on the big screen for the first time. Uh, during that stretch where the film played theaters for its 40th anniversary. And, uh, you know, we just had Don May Jr. of uh, Synapse on, and he had mentioned watching The Exorcist back in theaters yeah. uh, in 2000, and that the younger people in the audience sort of laughed at what were meant to be the scary moments, and um, which is insane to me. But uh, but whether it was my lucking out and getting sort of a decent crowd, or maybe, uh, maybe it's just a testament. I think it's probably just a testament to the power that the film still has, I'll say that in a sold-out auditorium, you could have heard a pin drop throughout during the 40th anniversary showing of Jaws. Like, so enthralled was the audience still for a 40-year-old film. And it's looking at it, it, it's just, it's perfect. I can't think of a single thing in that movie that needs to be changed. I think that's, um, you know, fantastic that people are still having that kind of reaction to it. And I think you brought up a good point. It speaks to the timelessness of the movie. I mean, yeah. It, it was released um, about 10 years before I was even born, but um, you watch it now, and other than, you know, some of the hairdos and clothes, I mean, everything is still relevant. It's still about people just trying to have a good time on vacation, um, you know, and then this, this unseen menace just kind of wrecks everybody's day. And, and, I mean, to me, it's got still one of the most terrifying scenes in any movie I've ever seen. And I watch a ton of horror movies. Um, but when, when those kids are in that bay oh, yeah. and that guy goes to save them, I don't know if he's like one of the kid's fathers or just someone that knows them and his boat gets tipped over and he's so desperately trying to claw back up, you know, to his, his boat or canoe. And you just see 
that image of the shark coming in sideways. I mean, it, it's it's the scariest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I don't even know if sharks do that. I, I, I don't watch Shark Week religiously because sharks are fucking terrifying. But um... Shark Week is garbage nowadays. Anyways. <laughs> I don't really do so much. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by them, and I'll never fail to check out a shark movie that's not called Sharknator or basically anything that comes on sci-fi. But, <laughs> um, you know, like The Shallows, had to be in the theater to see it. 47 meters down, had to go and see it. Yes. Um, but, yeah. you know, I for what precious little I know of sharks outside of movies, I don't even know that they can turn on their sides and attack like that. It just seems kind of weird that they do kind of the – or that the, the shark in that movie does kind of the weird crocodile barrel roll kind of thing. But there's something about that moment where – He's barely visible under the water. I mean, he's definitely there and he's dead eyed and his mouth is already open. And then you just see the guy, you know, for all the clawing and all of the scratching and the desperation, like he goes underneath the water so easily. And it's just, God, it's chilling. It's completely haunting that moment. Have you um, ever seen the picture? Uh, I don't know if they, they shot a footage, but they're was a picture that was going around of, um, I guess, unused footage that they were going to use for when uh, the little uh, Kidner boy gets attacked. And it's it looks like the scariest thing in the world. It's just the shark's head coming over the water. And I think they, they were going to use, like, a dummy body for the Kidner boy, and it was supposed to be a pretty intense scene. But, you know, they, they wound up going with the scene that's in the film, which is, you know, he gets attacked, and you see, like, this volcano eruption of blood coming out yeah, and yeah, yeah. splashing around, which, which I think is more effective because, you know, the less you see of it, the more suspense builds, more terrifying it is when they finally do the reveal. But, I mean, if you haven't, you, you got to track down that picture because it looks like, you know, pure nightmare fuel. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Any any moment with that damn shark is just, I shudder to think. And, um, you know, speaking of, like, haunting moments, too, like, I, I, I don't think any discussion of Jaws would be complete without at least a brief mention of Quint's Indianapolis speech. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just, it's one of the most... That, that, that's the best. Yeah, it, that... That speech is more dramatic and harrowing, I think, than most entire feature films. And it really, you know, it kind of undermines that whole, you know, rule of, you know, that screenwriting rule of show, don't tell. You know, one imagines a, uh, a less confident filmmaker feeling the need to cut in flashbacks of the men in the water and the sharks picking them off, you know. But, but I love right. that Spielberg just lets the camera rest on Shaw and Shaw just owns the film for that small stretch it's it's incredible i think it's one of i think it's one of the best scenes in all of cinema that moment and then you could just you you kind of get a, a picture it's almost like reading a book when you're looking at him you're coming up with this own image of your head in your head of what he's describing and what he's going through and it is just it you know it, it's better that they don't cut to something like that or it's better that they don't you know, they they let you leave it to your imagination and figure out, you know, what this guy could have went through. And then they kind of, <laughs> they kind of cross that scene where they go into uh, the next part where they just start getting drunk and singing a song. <laughs> and then that's where, you know, I guess the movie takes that crazy turn where stuff really starts going down. Yeah, absolutely. All right, sir. Well, unfortunately, I think we've just about reached the end of our time. Can I ask, do you have any final parting thoughts about Jaws? And where can folks find you at online? Um, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, you got to go see it. I just showed my wife it, um, probably last year. She never saw it herself. So, I mean, it's, it's a classic. You got to see it. Um, it's still scary 
even though it, you know it's it's 40 years old. Um, you know, as far as finding me online, I have a, a Facebook if anybody wants to hit me up. Um, but other than that, we'll try to stay under the radar. Very cool. All right. Well, sir, thank you again so much for being on the show and for uh, choosing such a great movie to talk about. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, my God. Run! I won't let you die. I won't let you. I'm gonna dream you into a beautiful thing. Nightmare 3 was the first of the franchise that I've seen, I believe, and it was just like the kills and the show or the movie are probably my favorite about the entire series the uh the welcome to prime time and him puppeteering with the guy and throwing him off the cliff and just the overall movie is out of all of them my favorite that was ethan james talking about chuck russell's 1987 freddie flick a nightmare on elm street 3 dream warriors mr james thanks so much for being on the show thank you for having me so out of any horror movie and any nightmare on elm street movie actually why go with dream warriors it was the first one that I've seen, and I, just the kills, I don't know. They've got like a classic touch to them. You know, you have the um, the welcome to primetime bitch, and like I said, the puppeteering, and then you have the um, his claws turning into syringes. And I just thought it was amazing the way they did everything with the drug addict and, you know. Yeah, it was so imaginative, um, that movie, in a way that, you know, maybe – you know, I'm not saying that the first movie wasn't imaginative. It absolutely was. And the second one, you know, it seemed to dial back a little bit on that. You know, everything that you could do within that sort of dreamscape. But with Nightmare 3, it seems like they leaned pretty hard into that to see what they could get away with and what crazy stuff they could dream up. And as a result, there are, you're right. There are some amazing, like, set pieces throughout that entire movie. And I think it's also the first movie in the franchise to really sort of – solidify who Freddy is, you know, as we know him, you know, up until that point, he was, he was occasionally humorous, you know, but he was more dark and scary and grim, but dream warriors gave us more of a funny and punny villain. And it gave us the character that we think of, I think when we think Freddy Krueger. Yeah. I was um, telling my girlfriend, she had never watched any of them. I told her we watched the first one last night, I believe. And I told her that the third was my favorite. She was asking why. And I was like, it's when Krueger becomes, Kruger as we know him you know you got him in the first one where he's kind of quiet and he's got a few one-liners and he's not really funny and then the second one you don't I mean you see him but you don't see much of him and then the third one is just when he really personifies Freddy Krueger as we know and love him yeah absolutely and uh now would you say out of all of them that Nightmare 3 is like your favorite uh yeah more than likely I mean if you want to count Freddy versus Jason I know it got a bad rep but I was a huge fan of Freddy versus Jason I think that movie's a blast as do I. I know a lot of people in the you know the horror genre and people who watch horror movies and everything. They absolutely hated it, and I just it's a great film. I feel like it's I I loved it. I uh, I remember previewing it at the theater that I worked at when it came out, and uh, it just it, we had 
probably about a half dozen people there. And I remember it just, it, it felt almost like a concert. We, we, this was the movie that we'd waited on forever. And, you know, even though there was only a handful of us, it was just like, you know, it was rowdy and it was fun. And we were chanting stuff at the screen and cheering, you know, the different moments. And what's crazy is, is that that movie killed its opening weekend. Like it sold out so many shows and people walked out just like charged. And I, I'm still stunned that we never got any follow-ups to it. I can't believe that their next steps after the success of that movie was to reboot both of the individual franchises. It's just kind of crazy to me, but, um, but I don't know when I, I will say that's probably my fourth favorite in the franchise, but weirdly enough, my favorite three, I think are the three that Craven had some hand in, you know, I love the first one. I love new nightmare. And then out of all the sequels, I think dream warriors is hands down my favorite. And of course, Craven didn't write really write the script that wound up being, uh, you know, the, the movie that we wound up seeing, but the fact that he had a hand in it at the very beginning in some way, you know, co-writing the script with Bruce Wagner, I think, uh, you know, maybe elevated it a tad, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. I know a lot of people as well who aren't a huge fan of uh, a new nightmare. And it kind of blows my mind because I like I really like the way the direction that they went with the film, you know, with Heather Langenkamp, you know, him not actually being there, him just being a star and everything, and her being on the talk show, and then Robert England comes out dressed up in full makeup, and everybody's screaming and chanting his name. I thought they did a really really good job, and a lot of my friends say it's a terrible film, and I've read terrible you know, things online where people don't like the film. Yeah, they just don't uh. like the movie. And I don't see how. I mean, in my opinion, if any of them out of the franchise, I didn't like two that much at all. I just them taking him into the real world at the very ending just kind of turned off the entire film for me. They kind of broke a rule, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I will say that two. I've come to appreciate certain aspects of two uh, over the course of the last few years. Uh, same thing with part four. Uh, we had a guest on who chose a Nightmare on Elm Street part four, and uh, it was Jackson Stewart. And I got to say, like, rewatching it in advance of that chat and then actually talking with him about it, I my opinion shifted on that. I'd never really cared for four that much. And then watching it again with, you know, uh, for this podcast, I was like, you know what? I, I, I do like part four. I think it is really interesting. But... You know, by the time you get to five and then especially six, like my uh, my patience for the sequels, you know, <laughs> it's sort <laughs> of wears thin by that point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I just I don't know. But um, but three, I think, is probably so far as the continuity set in stone by the first movie. I think the third one's probably the best sequel. I almost see New Nightmare as standing outside of the rest of the franchise. It's more of a neat companion piece than a sequel. Yeah, I can agree, definitely. Um, I Like I said earlier, there's just something about 3 that, you know, it's just incredible in my opinion. I had seen bits and pieces of the first one when I was younger, and I remember watching Johnny Depp get sucked into the bed, <laughs> and just like, that scene right there turned me on to it, and then I ended up watching the entire third one, and that, that was all, you know, he's my favorite out of all the, the killers, out of all the horror films, I'd have to say. Yeah, and, you know, there is something about Dream Warriors, too, that's kind of interesting in that it almost kind of plays out like some sort of fan wish fulfillment flick gone very wrong. Like our heroes in the movie, they get to be actual heroes for a time, you know, rather than simply being victims. And, um, you know, even in the first movie, you know, 
Uh, Heather Langenkamp's Nancy, she's such a great final girl. She's very resourceful and proactive at the end of it, but she's still a target, you know? And what's neat about Dream Warriors to a point is that you get the feeling that Freddy is now contending with kind of superhero versions of potential victims. And of course, it all this being a horror movie, it all goes so very wrong for them, but it's a really <laughs> neat place to start from. And it's something that they kind of... I felt like that idea could have been exploited further in the later movies, and it really wasn't. And that kind of bums me out because it's such a great idea. I agree. Out of all the scenes in number three, aside from the Welcome to Prime time, I think Heather Langenkamp or you know Nancy, her death was like a huge upset. But then again, it was just it kind of made the film because it paved way paved way for um, Patricia Arquette, I believe it is, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it paved way for her to defeat Freddy, and I thought that was really cool as well. Yeah, and it's a shame because it felt like there was a passing of the baton there between, uh, you know, between Nancy and uh, Kristen, and you know, unfortunately, you know, by the time you get to the next movie, we have a completely different actress playing Kristen, and she is offed so unceremoniously in the first twenty twenty five minutes of the movie. It's just, it's kind of a bummer, you know. It's almost like Nancy's sacrifice was kind of all for naught in a way, but. You know, just looking at part three, Nancy dying feels appropriate because, you know, the way the film ends, it feels like it could have been the final installment. You know, there was a finality there. It that, really does. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it was sort of easily sidestepped in the following movie. Sure. And I like part four and parts of five and very little of six. But I can't help but wonder if the franchise might have been stronger overall to have gone out with Dream Warriors and that ending. Uh you know, sort of uh, sort of bringing everything to a close. And then, uh, you know, could have come back with Craven's New Nightmare, I suppose, you know, uh, nearly a decade later. But uh, I don't know. I, I think it has the strongest ending out of any of the movies in the franchise, perhaps one aside. I agree. I'm pretty sure, uh, aside from it might be the reboot, it got one of the highest grossing incomes in the box office. I think it's a New Nightmare, the reboot, and then I think, if I'm correct, Dream Warriors is number three. Yeah, yeah, it's and it makes sense too. You can see why that would appeal to so many people at the time. I can't believe that the movie is now God, is it thirty years old now or close to it? I believe so, yeah. Yikes. I'm getting old. I think I've said that like fifteen <laughs> times during this this single podcast, but uh but so it goes. <laughs> but yeah, it is I, I, I think it's so much fun and it's so imaginative and I miss I'll say this, I miss the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I don't miss. I don't miss Jackie Earl Haley, even though I thought he was fine in the remake. But I don't miss that world. I don't miss that version of Nightmare. But I miss the 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 films. The, the way that, sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. I I just I I wish that that franchise could get back on its feet again, and I wish it could give us movies like Dream Warriors. I wish we could have. Yeah, horror movies with loads of imagination and a decent budget to pull it off. And I think it would there would be no better franchise to do that than with Nightmare. So it's amazing to me that it's just kind of laying dormant right now. It's it's stunning to me. But um, I, I just I, I suppose I just want more Dream Warriors, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely agree. Um, that was like the best time for horror films, in my opinion. And I, I wasn't really even that old when A New Nightmare came out, but... I remember watching movies like that with my grandmother. She loved horror films, and 
you know, Chucky, Child's Play, uh, Friday the 13th, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street. It's just movies that I grew up with. And now that I'm a young adult, it's just like, I watch them and I watch them and I watch them praying that eventually maybe they'll come out, you know, to make new ones, but it won't be bad. Because I feel like um, the person who played Freddy in the reboot, I mean, he did a great job, but he just, the way he took on Freddy was too serious, in my opinion, and, you know, dark. And it kind of went back to um, the first night on Elm Street where he wasn't witty or anything like that. He was just, you know, a few lines here and a few lines there and would kill his victims. But it'd be cool to see them bring it back to life with the Freddy that we know and love. I agree. And, you know, maybe that's the second thing that I'm really missing about, you know, uh, a good deal of modern horror movies isn't merely the imagination, but it's just the fun. You know, Jack Earl Haley's Freddy wasn't fun anymore. It was just kind of a bummer. And, you know, that was a perfectly valid approach for them to take with that movie. I I don't think that's what the movie's biggest failing was, certainly. But, uh, yeah, I just fun and imagination. That's that's what I want out of some horror movies these days. So. I can completely agree, especially when it's a nightmare film. You got to have the the fun, the imagination, the the one liners. I think that's what he's known for. Absolutely. After all these years, is his sarcastic attitude he's killing his victims. <laughs> all right, sir. Well, hey, I think we've just about reached the uh, the end of our time here. Can I ask? Do you have any final parting thoughts about Dream Warriors? If you haven't seen it, check it out. I, I feel like everybody by now has has had just seen it. I know for sure I'll probably be watching again tonight, talking about it. Makes you want to watch the movie again. <laughs> so, can I ask, where can folks find you at online? Uh, Facebook at Ethan James Durr, Instagram at Wondering Limits. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate your coming on and for choosing such a great movie to talk about. I really appreciate you having me on. All right, and so ends our anniversary episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about this episode. Leave a comment, rate and review us on iTunes, yell at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. And uh, just let us know who you are. Say hello. Just say hello. That's, that's all we want. Anyway, until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. <laughs>